3: because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Hey, Robert, have you seen all these cute, Jason Voorhees dolls and cartoons and fan (laughs) art all over the internet. Of
2: course you have. I've at least seen some of it, but I know you shared with me an image of a Jason plush doll, and I, I had not encountered that specific cute horror before. Yeah.
0: So he's got the machete, and there's blood on the machete. But he's adorable. <laughs> but he has blood on it, like, you know, yeah. murder weapons. I mean, even if we didn't know who he is, uh-huh. the, the context here is that this is a killer. Yeah, he's got a huge head, huge low-set eyes. He, he just looks so sweet, little stumpy limbs. He's mm-hmm. like a little cute baby Jason. And there are cute Freddy Kruegers in the same way, cute Freddy Krueger cartoons, dolls, toys, uh, things all over the Internet. And you've seen the cute vampires, the cute werewolves, cute versions of the girl from the ring I looked it up ah. that exists cute predators from the movie predator I saw that that's really? c- huh. that's kind of easy because the predator already has a sort of baby shaped head you just he got to like yeah. make the eyes bigger uh there are cute xenomorphs you'd think that'd be mm-hmm. difficult to do but they're all over the internet What is with this epidemic of monsters originally imagined to be horrifying, threatening, to haunt our dreams, to chase us through our nightmares, to murder us and our friends? And instead, we're making all these versions of them that are adorable with infantile characteristics that you just want to hug and snuggle.
2: It seems inevitable, doesn't it? Even even in weird cases like, uh, for instance, the, the Babadook.
0: Oh yeah, uh, which
2: is uh, like a child murdering monster, right? Yeah, and then uh, the same with Pennywise the clown. Like you would think that Pennywise, this thing that appears as a, a clown in order to you know drain the the essence out of children and pull them into horrify them and pull them into sewers, you would think that would be beyond our ability to make cute. And yet, just the other day, I was looking at, at cute pins of Pennywise all cuted up.
0: Yeah, well, if you want to go in the cosmic direction, how about all the cute Illithid mon- or the cute, you know, uh, Cthulhu mythos stuff?
2: Yeah, when... Uh,
0: cute, cute plush Cthulhus. When my
2: son came into my life, that was one of the the first things we gave him was a, a plush Cthulhu, uh-huh. uh, which he loves, and it's an adorable looking creature, but yeah, it has, he doesn't even know
0: that it is essentially supposed to be a scary monster. I guess it's not funny to children in the same way it is funny to adults.
2: No, they, he just sees it as a cool pretend little creature. It's like if you encountered Snuffleupagus and then somebody said, oh, yeah, Snuffleupagus is actually uh,
0: patterned after this hideous monster. Right. This thing that snorts you up as a liquid through its uh, trunk. Yeah. Though I do want to say before this epidemic of cute cartoon versions and cute dolls and stuff like that of, say, Freddy Krueger, there is a precedent for this within the horror media itself because – You've seen the Freddy Krueger movies, right? The Nightmare yes. on Elm Street. Yeah, right. I've,
2: I've seen the first one, and I've seen the remake, and I like both of those. And the rest is just mostly clips and just the pop cultural oh. absorption of this ever ridiculous Freddy Krueger that uh, that you know that, that has all these catchphrases uh-huh. and uh, and ingenious kills. Yeah, uh, that's. That that all just kind of blurs together for me.
0: Well, there there is definitely an arc throughout the series where over time, the Freddy Krueger of the first movie and the first Nightmare on Elm Street, I think Wes Craven went out of his way to make him not just a threatening monster, the standard kind of monster that will hurt you and chases you, but to make him repulsive and really just nasty. I mean, Freddy Krueger in the first movie – is a character who's supposed to be a child murderer. Mm -hmm. And there are these suggestions of perversity and this this kind of gross creepiness, not just threatening monstrosity. And so from that point, I think it's really amazing that over the arc of the series, Freddy becomes sort of almost something like an anti-hero. Like he's never actually a good guy, but... He stops becoming this gross creep that you don't even want to look at and becomes this jokester who dances and mugs <laughs> for the camera and has one liners, makes jokes. And he 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 becomes the star of the films. He becomes the reason people watch it. And it's because he's fun and he's comic. He becomes the Crypt Keeper. He becomes Hulk Hogan. Uh, and then certainly by
2: Jason versus Freddie. You're probably rooting for one or the other. He is like, there's kind of a 50-50 split there that, that you may be backing this character in the
0: brawl. Yeah. And maybe you could chalk that up in the Freddy movies just to the actor who played him, Robert England, being a great and likable actor despite the fact that he's saddled with this incredibly repulsive role. Uh huh. Uh, maybe Robert England just bleeds through so much that you want to make him more and more likable. Well, yeah. It, it even got to the point when they, when the remake
2: of Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Um, a lot of people didn't like it. Uh, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was a fine horror film. I didn't like it. You didn't like. It? Well, no. I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, but then again, I'm less attached to the series. But, but one of the criticisms that I saw leveled at it was, how could you make Freddie a pedophile? How could you make this his overt, uh, make this creepiness in his character so overt? Uh, as if that, like, ruined a hero and not just made a grotesque monster
0: a little creepier. I think it was always kind of implicitly suggested back mm-hmm. in the first movie. I mean, they never said that outright that I recall. But it, yeah. it's always there in the fact that, like we were saying, he's not just a threat. He's a creep. He's perverse. Right.
2: Yeah. So it, it's interesting to see how people... Responded to kind of a doubling down on on uh, on the the grotesque uh, monstrosity of the character, and away from the you know ridiculous pop culture version of the character.
0: Right. Yeah. The version in the remake is not going to be doing I don't know Domino's Pizza commercials or whatever <laughs> Freddie was doing in the eighties. Yeah. But of course Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street series is not the only series where we see a monstrous horrifying character transformed over time into something that's more approachable, more likable, more uh identifiable, maybe even kind of snuggly. This happens a lot in horror literature and even in horror folklore.
2: Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to get into some examples from uh, from folklore and legend, particularly some examples from Japanese folklore mm-hmm. because as we're talking we inevitably talk about both monsters and the world of cute—like you have to go to Japan because Japan is uh, is the home not only of some pretty hideous folkloric monsters, but also uh, kawaii. This this notion of, of of like overt, just overpowered cuteness, the Hello Kitty level of cuteness that has not only taken Japan by storm, but has has spread its cuddly tentacles into just about every portion of the earth.
0: Yeah, it's like overclocking the adorability processor. Right? Yeah,
2: almost to the point of, of insanity. And I should also point out that this also goes the other way, of course. Just as monsters often become cute, there are also plenty of examples of people taking something cute and making it monstrous. Um, I kind of did it just a few minutes ago talking about Snuffleupagus. Uh-huh. But you, you inevitably see people who, say, do a Lovecraftian take on Totoro uh, or uh, And then there's a whole area of Kauai known as Kauai Noir, which is like dark cute, where they have something that pretty much intentionally has a, a leg or maybe a tentacle in both uh, the cute and the monstrous uh, content bucket.
0: I feel like this is something that very often happens in comedy animation. I think you know shows like South Park and Futurama mm-hmm. and Simpsons and stuff like that always have a scene at some point where a very cute animal turns out to be a horrifying killer. yeah. So in today's episode, we're going to explore this. We're going to explore
2: what is the relationship between the monstrous and the cute? Why is there, there this interesting interplay? And in doing that, we're going to, of course, discuss a little bit about what a monster is. Though I think we've hit that harder in previous episodes here Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We're going to talk about what it is to be cute. What's going on when something cute hijacks our brain? And then at the end of the episode, we're going to look to uh, really three specific examples of Japanese monsters that may or may not be transformed into something cute. Uh, we'll be discussing the Oni, the Kappa, and the Tengu. All right, Robert, what is a monster? Oh, well, you know, it's uh, it's it's like cute. It's like uh, pornography. We know it when we see it right but if you if you really have to you know if you really force somebody to to define it what you tend to think about something that is awesome in form or size it's novel and it's chimerical combination of natural forms you know like it's got the head of a seahorse and the body of a cow that's mm-hmm. a monster Or you know, you know, or it's just a giant seahorse. A seahorse the size of a school bus would also be a monster.
0: I subscribe to the Metallica theory of monsterdom, (laughs) which is that a monster is the thing that should not be. Yes, it's a thing that you behold and realize that it it is not only not something you recognize from nature, but it's something that you do not wish nature had. Now, obviously, we violate those norms all the time because we get into monsters, we we find ourselves at home thinking about monsters and we kind of do wish there was a giant mummy crocodile with laser eyes right (laughs) but uh, at least in theory the thing a monster is is it violates natural categories in some way and it horrifies you makes you afraid makes you not want it to be there
2: and as we discussed in our, our episode, the first monster, which uh, which came out previously for uh, for this year's Halloween, um, there's often a message there, if if not a message that is tied up in the monster's form, then tied up in the monster's presence or in the stories about it. Like this monster is a danger to you because of why? Because you went somewhere or you did something. Or you're engaged in a culture that went somewhere or did something.
0: Yeah. Rarely do monsters appear in folklore without some kind of warning or social message. Right. OK. So that's monsters in a nutshell. But but how about cute? Cute
2: uh, – is in, in a way easier to nail down, but also just as ambiguous as monstrosity.
0: Well, it's one of those things that everybody can identify it by sight. You know, mm-hmm. you can tell, well, that's cute. That's not. That's cute. That's not. But when you're asked to give a set of criteria for how you're making the decision, you'd you'd often come up at a loss for words, right? Well, it's certainly in the eyes of the beholder. But we can tease it
2: apart to a certain extent. We we can say, look at Almost uh, universal images of of the cute and see what's connecting with us there and then figure out why it's connecting with us. So, for instance, kittens, babies, or, of course, Hello Kitty, which is essentially a kitten combined with a baby or a small child. With psychedelic color schemes. Psychedelic color schemes. And then, of course, many cute uh, creatures of uh, either real ones or fanciful ones. What do they have? They have big, adorable eyes or perhaps big jowls, baby-like cheeks.
0: They're kind of Winston Churchill's. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Uh, so, yeah, th- there do appear to be some biological roots to our recognition of cuteness. It does seem to go into our mammalian brains and not just into cultural categories, though culture may very well inform a lot of what we find cute downstream of these biological cues. So in his 1872 book, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, Charles Darwin suggested that. Natural selection is probably going to favor creatures which, in infancy, possess features that cause the adults of that species to protect them and take care of their needs, right? If you are a species that has a genome that says we usually give birth to babies we find repulsive and don't want anything to do with, Mm -hmm. that species isn't going to do very well. Right.
2: Or at least you're going to have a situation like the Komodo dragon. Where the young of the Komodo dragon, they pretty much – they're on their own. Right. And they have to protect themselves from such threats as
0: adult Komodo dragons. Exactly. So this would be in species that need to spend a lot of time protecting and caring Mm -hmm. for their young. This is something we see in mammals, right? Right. And other species, but especially in mammals. So a lot of Darwin's book deals with things like the screams of infants and how the scream of an infant elicits parental attention. But usually if an object is screaming at you, you don't – you just – you know, don't you just find it annoying like you want to get away from it? Like if there's just a, an orb in a room screaming at you, I wouldn't want to care for it. I would run away.
2: Correct. Yeah. If if, uh, if a human on a train is screaming, um, there may be a- – you want to find out what's happening. You might even want to help. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's there's at least that question mark phase of the screaming. Right. What is going on here? Let me
0: find out so that I can act accordingly. Yeah, it's attention getting. But the demands of an infant have to be more than simply attention getting. To be adaptive, they have to be sharpened to appeal to specific vulnerabilities in the adult caregiver's brain, like vulnerabilities that soften anger responses and encourage protectiveness and encourage generosity and sharing of resources, and so forth. So something about the infant version of an animal uh, has to convince the adult version of that animal to feel an attachment and to make sacrifices on behalf of this little creature. Now, we'll talk about this more in a second, but in some species, these appeals for parenting could be straightforwardly chemical, right? Pheromones and scent Mm -hmm. would be examples. But couldn't these biological appeals also be visual? It makes sense, right? That's a... one of the
2: most immediate ways to interact with uh, with an object or a being is you see them and then you respond.
0: Right. So in the middle of the 20th century, the Austrian ethologist Konrad Lorenz, who uh, I guess we should maybe acknowledge – it's always weird, like, should you bring this up or not? He was also a Nazi mm. uh, after World War II repudiated his views. I'm not aware that his ideology played any role in coming up with this schema we're about to talk about. But I guess it's worth acknowledging.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean I think it's always worth noting uh, when a scientist has that in their background because in some cases you you definitely have science that, that was skewed or compromised by its association with the Third Reich. Uh
0: so I mean, you, yeah. ha- you have to at least acknowledge that it was there in order to de- determine if it was a factor. Yeah. I mean like you had people doing science that was ideologically determined, not yeah. very objective. But uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case in this case. So Lorenz uh, plunged into this field. By observing animal species and coming up with what's known as the Kynchon schema or the baby schema, it's a list of features that he believed were sculpted in order to trigger or release caregiving behaviors in adult animals. And he gave about seven criteria. So let me know what you think about these, Robert. Okay. A large head. Okay. Yeah. Babies have big heads predominance of the brain capsules that's going to mean not just a large head but sort of the large forehead like the swelling of the upper part of the head mm-hmm. large and low-lying eyes a bulging cheek region there's the Churchill jowls we were talking about yeah short and thick extremities okay a springy or elastic consistency yeah they, they when you when you poke them yeah, yeah in a soft body yeah mm-hmm. there's your plush doll and finally, clumsy movements. Yes, the toddling of the toddler. Right. And subsequent studies have found evidence to partially support Lorenz's schema. So this is one reason to think that, it you know, even if he's got some kind of crazy ideology, there might be something to this because subsequent studies seem to find some of the same stuff is true. <laughs> so I'll mention one study from 2009 published in Ethology by Melanie Glocker et al. And this is called Baby Schema in Infant Faces Induces Cuteness Perception and Motivation for Caretaking in Adults. And what they did in this study was they used real photos of infants digitally manipulated to accentuate or to downplay some of the features that are in line with Lorenz's criteria. And so among a group of undergraduates, the study found that the faces manipulated toward the criteria, so meaning they manipulated them to have larger eyes or a rounder face or a higher forehead, were judged to be cuter and elicited greater motivation for caregiving. People said they were more likely to give care to these, uh, these more baby schema faces than the ones where they really downplayed those criteria, giving them smaller eyes, smaller foreheads, a narrower face, and stuff like that. Huh. This now is... I've got a picture here.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this right now. So um, basically, we have a, a an array of six images, mm-hmm. three per row. So we have this grid of baby heads here that we're looking at, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and the idea that there's a, a change in, uh, like, cuteness from left to right.
0: Yeah, so you've got, like, normal baby heads in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then on the right you've got ultra babified baby faces. Right. With like these gigantic eyes, really round faces, really sort of low faces with large foreheads, big brain capsules. And then on the right, you've got unbabified baby faces that look sort of more like the kid in the omen. <laughs> or they they look more adult, basically, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they?
2: they look more like old men, you know. Uh, yeah. They're they're kind of in that category of like the older Baby, uh, babies that where you look at them and you, maybe you you cringe a little bit before you tell the the parents that it's a beautiful baby.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they tend to have like smaller eyes, a smaller forehead, uh, a, a narrower head, and a less rounding of the skull. They they look they look like weird adults rather than babies. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and it's interesting to to look at this and think of it in in light of our basically our evolved reaction to these faces. Uh, I was looking at a, a study that, that said that scientists have used magnetoencephalography to observe a seventh of a second response time in adults to unfamiliar infant faces, but of course not adult faces, and that's going to that's uh, that difference is going to be manifest in this array of faces as well, like
0: the cuter the baby, the more immediate. Your response to it, I imagine. So, like, you see this cute baby face with the highly babified features and you're like, whoa, that! I need to pay attention to that.
2: Yeah. I've got to look at that and if it needs something, I guess I will go buy it some milk <laughs> or some pudding or whatever it is babies eat.
0: Right. Put zip ties on all my cabinets, those horrible plastic (laughs) things, and all my uh, wall plugs. I know. I'm I'm still trying to work through all
2: the baby proofing on my house. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah, there's still some annoying baby proofing that I haven't quite, like,
0: broken by forcing a a drawer open. (laughs) But so one of the interesting things about the recognition of cuteness and its biological function is that it appears to work not just within species. Now, I can't see any real reason... That you would evolve to have a a a caregiving preference for animals other than your own species, so it might be one of those things that's just a byproduct of something that's highly adaptable.
2: Yeah, I mean we're all we're related to all these other mammalian creatures. Yeah, and and they're all they all have the basic basically the same survival. techniques in place in terms of uh, parental care for the infant.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of obvious from our experiences with kittens and puppies and so forth, but experiments do confirm that our appreciation for cuteness goes beyond the infant homo sapiens. One example is a study I uh, found by uh, Anthony Little from 2012 published again in Ethology called Manipulation of Infant-like Traits Affects Perceived Cuteness of Infant, Adult, and Cat Faces. So it found that uh, among images of three types of faces, babies, adults, and cats, uh, first of all, people found the babies and the cats cuter than adults. Mm -hmm. But then also when the faces from all three categories were manipulated to have baby schema characteristics, for example, decreasing the jaw size and increasing the forehead height, people found them cuter. And this worked for adult faces, for human baby faces, and for cat faces.
2: Okay, so getting into kind of the Betty Boop area there. Of like the the weird like infantile uh but um uh, uh, but you know arguably attractive adult female.
0: Yeah, it's it's just seeming to imply that we have the same kind of caregiving response or, or cuteness response to faces of all different types of creatures, no matter what age and no matter what species even. If there's a face and you make these certain types of changes to the face, we think it's cute usually, and we respond with awe, you know, zip-tie the chemical cabinet. <laughs> you know, it, it's
2: interesting to think of it in terms of survival adaptations for for non-human animals. Uh, when you think of of, uh, of domesticated animals, uh, cats and dogs, because uh, certainly I think that I've, I've certainly read some studies that argue for the 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 cat's ability to essentially hijack us by making us think it's a baby on some level. Yeah. You know? and, I, and, and I think dogs do that, too, to a large extent, it's, it's certainly with puppies. So I could see it as a situation where uh, an, an infant dog or or cat that is either found or it's obtained when the parents are killed, like suddenly those are less likely to be then killed and eaten or skinned or left for dead by the the humans who have found it uh, if it hits those same triggers, you know. Now, another study I came across, is a 2012 Japanese study published in PLOS One, and they tested the effect of viewing kawaii images or cute images on attentiveness. And they <laughs> found that individuals who viewed infant animal images... Perform tasks better than those who viewed adult animals. What? Yeah, that so, seems weird. Like, so, just if you had to have a calendar at your desk, have the uh, the baby animals
0: calendar as opposed to the uh, the grown up animals calendar. Huh. I don't know. I I feel I feel un- unfairly skeptical of that result. Has that been replicated? <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: well, let's, let's let's see. So it's not just a matter, according to this study, of cute things making us happier or amusing us. They also Allegedly improve performance in quote tasks that require behavioral carefulness.
0: Oh, I yeah. can
2: see that. Yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not so much there's not a magical effect going on here. It's just the idea that the cute visible stimuli may actually narrow the breadth of attentional focus.
0: I can see that. No, like seeing a baby face would put the mind into a don't drop the baby gear. Exactly. And then you take that gear and you
2: apply it to working in your spreadsheet. I can see that. Yeah, okay. I understand the mechanism now. Now, different studies have also looked at the effects of cute marketing on consumer restraint, of Hmm. course. Uh, and and uh, also on whether it has a – to what extent it affects indulgent behavior. Because uh, the whole don't drop the baby mentality, do you want your consumer uh, using that uh, that kind of uh, mentality when they're potentially buying your
0: product? Right. You want to encourage them to drop the wallet.
2: Yeah. They found that uh, that for some people, cute images with big eyes or baby cheeks seem to induce more careful or strained behavior. But uh, – but again not every case but it's an interesting uh, additional study related to this whole uh, uh, idea of of intensified attentiveness yeah now it's also worth noting that when we're talking about cute, we're inevitably talking about visual stimuli a lot here because that's going to be the thing that's bound up in either a, a you know a plush doll of a of a horror monster or a Halloween costume that's derived from it.
0: Yeah. Now there are obviously also cute sounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. The
2: cute baby sound, but even the cute baby smell. Uh, I hadn't really thought about this, but you know, obviously, if you've ever smelled a baby. It's fabulous, and it's hard to really put a key, put put a finger on what's happening there, like why is this an attractive smell to smell a baby's head? I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about really well, the next time you're around a baby, uh do yourself a favor uh smell it <laughs> sounds its head.
0: creepy unless it's your baby maybe.
2: <laughs> well no you can just, just you can ask you can say, hey, uh, I've, been out reading, of the park and I've been I've re- been gonna... reading some studies and uh, in uh you know in the name of science, would you allow me to smell your baby's head
0: uh-huh yeah. Have you seen that product on the market that is like a bottled cat head smell? <laughs> no, like an actual cat's head or a cat head biscuit? I think. Uh, oh, I don't know. What's what is a cat head biscuit? It's
2: just a big old biscuit that's roughly the size of a cat's head. I, I'm, I'm not sure which what what region uh, that uh, that is found in. I, I guess somewhere in the south here.
0: Uh, I think it's actually supposed to be a cat's head. Oh, okay. It's like a perfume you can buy that's supposed to smell like a cat head. But cats don't really
2: smell like anything if, if it's, a, unless it's a dirty cat. Like they tend to have, like maybe they smell like pennies a little bit, or like batteries, <laughs> but that's about the extent of it.
0: Uh, don't they usually smell like sulfur? <laughs> well,
2: not the ones I'm brimstone. hanging Brimstone. <laughs> All right. Well, so on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get more into this conflict, this battle between cute and monstrosity. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
2: all right so we're back so we've talked about cute we've talked about monsters we've talked about them mostly is distant islands, you know, uh, entirely separate from each other. So on one hand you have the Isle of Misfit Toys and then you have Monster Island on the other, I suppose.
0: Wait, are the Misfit Toys not also monsters?
2: Well, yeah, I guess they're kind of monstrous. What would be Ooh. the what would be the cute
0: island? Oh, it's that island in Japan that's got all the cats on it. Cat Heaven Island. There you go. That'll work.
2: So it's the difference between Cat Heaven, Cat Heaven Island and uh and Monster Island. But We have to, you have to wonder, are these two states all that different? Uh, Are they really two separate things or are they different points on a spectrum? Well, I ran across a, a really thought provoking paper titled Monstrous Slash Cute Notes on the ambivalent, ambivalent Nature of Cuteness, and this is by social scientist Maja Brozozowska-Branchinska. I hope I pronounced that at least halfway right, but uh, I will try and link to this paper on the landing page for this episode. It's stuffedableyourmind.com so you can uh, see it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, Maja Bibi, as I will refer to her, uh, she dives into all of this, noting that there's a certain ambiguity and, and hybridity uh, to both monsters and cute entities, or cuties,
0: uh, if you will. Cuties. So they're not just different things, but they're something lying along the same scale, maybe? Yeah, you can think of them as both, both of them as exaggerated
2: states. And she also points out that cute images boast safe aesthetics that indicate harmless ethics. Hmm. So I think it's perplexing because uh, infants, I think we can all agree, are wholly are ho- blameless creatures. <laughs> um, I'm not saying you can't look at one in in horror or fear, uh, but that horror or fear is generally tied to the, the ethical nature of the creature itself. You mean not tied? Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's generally not tied to the ethical nature of the creature itself. It's tied to... You know you' maybe it's tied to feelings of commitment or uh you know uncertainty about the state of the world, or yeah. I guess the closest you could come to having an an absolute authentic horror to the creature uh of of the infant is to just be appalled
0: at what it does in its diaper, you know, yeah, but uh well, you could also have some kind of doctrine, I don't know some original sin type thing, well,
2: yes, but that's that's you're really you're you're cheating at that point, I think you're creating right. a narrative. That actually shames an infant. And so shame on you for doing it. And you, of course, you might have some sort of response to just sort of the chaotic nature of infants. But if infants are chaotic and they certainly can be, it, they're definitely chaotic neutral, if not chaotic good. They're, they're not chaotic evil. OK, you've convinced me infants are OK, Robert. Now, likewise, the monster is traditionally a thing as rotten on the inside as it is on the outside. The monster with a heart of gold is is an exception, granted a, a pretty widespread exception at this point, but it's an exception that proves the rule.
0: Well, it's kind of like those, uh, the, the exception that proves the rule on the other side would be those evil baby movies. Exactly. Where there's like yeah. a possessed demon infant or something. Yeah,
2: but generally, like a monster is as Evil as it is as it is ugly, and a cute baby or cartoon character is as sweet as it is visually cute.
0: Now, I like this uh, this idea of cuteness being not just a thing that we respond to as caregivers and that makes us want to give up our protection and resources for it, but it's also something that signals harmlessness. Because it makes me think about the human domestication of animals. Uh like, oh, yeah. For example, if you look at dogs, the domestic dog that we have today evolved both through natural but mostly artificial selection from some type of wolf-like canid species within the history of anatomically modern humans. Now, because humans were selecting which features to breed into their dogs, I think we often assume that cute dog breeds – where the adult of the dog is very cute, we're bred for cuteness simply for aesthetic reasons, right? We wanted them to look cute because we like it. But it's also worth thinking about the possibility of a correlation between cuteness and the domesticated affect itself, like... Domestic dogs seem to have been selected to retain juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And these would include things like a wider face, shorter snouts, floppy ears, a curly tail, but also positive responses to humans. This is something you would probably see in like wolf cubs or fox cubs, Mm -hmm. but not in adult wolves or adult foxes. They're the juvenile characteristics of the wild ancestor or the wild cousin that are retained into adulthood in the domesticated version... And so cuteness might not only be something that releases caregiving behaviors in adults, but it's literally correlated with the biological transformation of a wild, unruly animal that cannot be contained and is somewhat dangerous into this friendly, pliable, non-threatening domestic companion. Like the cuteness shows that it has made a biological transformation into something that won't bite you and in fact might want to snuggle with you. Huh. I mean, that explains
2: the, the form of the pug uh, right down to a T. Oh, yeah? The, the pug is essentially a dog that we have bred to look as much like a human infant as possible.
0: Oh, yeah. It is a human baby with four legs and a tail. <laughs> that can obviously bite you, though,
2: if yeah. if, if provoked. Um, Do pugs have teeth, really? Yes. <laughs> teeth. I mean, how much more <laughs> awful would it be if we'd managed to breed the teeth out of the dog? I mean, yeah. we've metaphorically bred the teeth out of, out of the dog, but – uh but not literally. Yeah. All right. So that Maja Bibi paper that I was discussing earlier, she also uh, points uh, a lot of this out about Japanese kawaii. Hmm. That uh, the term itself, the, the again, this is the Japanese cuteness or hyper cuteness. Kawaii derives from the word uh, kawayushi, which principally means shy and embarrassed as well as vulnerable, small and darling. And it's applied to both babies and old people. Perhaps denoting a certain helplessness, mm-hmm. and, and I've also seen where there's a variation on Kawaii, uh, like a, a variant word that is uh, that that is used as a put-down that has a negative connotation, as meaning pet, pathetic, poor, or pitiable in a in a generally negative way.
0: Oh, so it's like on the playground when a bully says the other kid is like, "Oh, little baby."
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting you bring that up because my my son is in kindergarten mm. and he's still at the age where that is the ultimate put down. Whoa. Like, if you're gonna insult somebody, you you call them a baby, and it's the worst thing in the world. To the point where it, our cat, if our cat misbehaves, yeah, uh, our, our uh, uh, then my, my son will say, "Oh, baby mochi," uh, or, <laughs> or even it doesn't even have to be a, a person or a thing; it can just be a general idea. Or it can be an object, but, it, and you just put baby in front of it, and that's like the ultimate belittling of it.
0: Like the toaster
2: won't work, it's a baby. Yes, baby toaster. Like instead of saying stupid toaster or, or some, or some other more adult, uh, um, uh, word, you just say baby toaster.
0: Uh <laughs> But that's funny because I think the literature reflects that children do respond well to these infantile features as well, right? Like children like the baby schema. Children yeah. like cuteness a lot.
2: Yeah. I mean you just have to look at their stuffed animals uh, and and there's the proof. Yeah. So the idea here is perhaps the monsters and the cute are the same energy applied in opposite directions. Uh, in fact, uh, Maja Bibi writes of cuteness as a pendulum. It, quote – works inevitably as a sort of pendulum swinging to and fro and thus being able to play its role only up to a certain point where the sweetness becomes a mock and a pitiful or ironic alter ego of itself. And I would wonder if the same holds true of monsters as well. Uh, Because if, if monstrousness and cuteness, if these are essentially one slider... And, uh, you know, think of it as like Photoshop where you have a slider between dark and light mm-hmm. or some or, you know, uh, or it's a slider for shade or tint or something. Could you push the slider so far in not only the cute direction but the monster direction so that the monstrous thing becomes ridiculous? Hmm. Now, obviously, all this is in the eye of the beholder, but I instantly thought of uh, rat thinks. I thought of um, – some of the monsters from the Spawn comics, <laughs> and I thought of the monsters from the wonderful 1993 movie Freaked, which are very much modeled after, I think, Ratfink. So Ratfinks, these are like these monsters form bulging eyes, uh, you know, grotesque smiles and teeth that are that would that were shown illustrated to to ride a a hot rod around.
0: Hmm.
2: And they're not scary. They're not. I wouldn't say they're necessarily cute, but it's like the monstrous. Elements of the character design are pushed to such a degree that it's almost impossible to find it frightful anymore.
0: Right, it's like you almost intuitively detect excess. Yeah, and and it becomes funny.
2: Yeah, and and with cute, I can think of. Uh, I mean, it's one of those you know it when you see it examples, but we've all encountered sickeningly sweet, sickeningly cute, where something has been just designed so cute that it is almost repulsive. Yeah uh and the the only example I can think of offhand is that I feel like the character Gurr in invader Zim this is the uh yonan uh, Vasquez uh, uh comic and mm-hmm. uh and t v series The character of Gur is intentionally just so cute looking that it you're it it causes revulsion
0: well, a lot of times the revulsion comes in I think in the addition of text or speech. Like I think of the memes where you've got a kitten and the kitten might just be adorable on its mm-hmm. own. But like if you add some meme text to it, it becomes gross where the kitten says like, you know, I, I made you a cookie, but I eat it. <laughs> yes, that is that's like linguistically, uh sickeningly cute. Yeah. Why is that? Why does that feel over the edge? It's like so <laughs> cute. It's unpleasant. No,
2: I don't know why. I guess it's. It kind of falls into the same way – like uh, children are – when they use grammar incorrectly, mm-hmm. it can be cute um, to to an almost um, destructive degree. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to remember. There's something that my son would say and I actually hesitated to correct him because it was so adorable. And then I found was like I just can't do that. It's selfish of me. I need to teach the boy to, to speak properly uh, even if it means destroying these cute moments. Was he calling like a
0: broken toy a baby or something?
2: No, what was it he said? It was it'll come to me later, I'm yeah. sure. So Maja Bibi does not uh she doesn't push this slider idea specifically, but I think I think she would agree with it because she says, quote, it's possible to position both cute and monstrous in one dimension. The space that Michel Foucault called heterotopia, the place outside the norm, the site of revolutionary potential to change, depose to an alternate order. Where the coherence between words and reality is no more possible, and the paradox is the structuring rule.
0: <laughs> so it's so cute, it's insane, or it's yes. so monstrous. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's it's like that Leftcraftian vibe. Like the monster is so terrifying that you just lose your entire mind. And likewise, uh, something could be that cute that you just you just you can't. You just have to. It, it kind of gets into the whole theory about the biting of babies. Like the desire to pinch a baby
0: because it's so cute. I know you've talked about this before, but I don't know much about it. What's the deal here? Uh,
2: we have an older episode. Uh, there's one I did with Julie on this this topic, uh, but it's it's been studied. Like basically, you see something so cute and you just want to you want to bite it, you want to pinch it. <laughs> you you know, it could be a kitten or a or a puppy or a child, and it's it's really that the, the cute has become overpowering that you, it has to be counterbalanced with something awful.
0: Huh? Yeah. So you need to hand the the cute puppy a blood splattered machete, like the Jason doll.
2: It's interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but in a way, that that blood spl- uh, splattered machete is the pinch. It's the counterbalance here, and I I wonder if there are other examples we could look to in, in in cute iconography where we have we have added a little, you know, some sort of an adult element, some you know, violence or terror to something. And it does serve to
0: to balance it out and making it, and prevent us from going completely insane. All right. Well, we've already looked at a bunch of monsters from, you know, modern fiction and modern horror and stuff like that. I think we should turn our attention to traditional folkloric monsters and see if they, they make this same transition in our popular culture and, and become cute over time. So let, let's do the case studies next from Japanese folklore
1: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
0: All right. We're back.
2: So obviously the Japanese have many spirits, many demons, many monsters, just a rich assortment of yokai uh, to choose from. But we're going to focus on what you can think of as the big three, the Kappa, the Oni and the Tengu. Okay. So let let's start with the kappa. You you're familiar with the the kappa, I assume.
0: Yeah, we both read this great paper from Asian Folklore Studies from 1998 uh, by the scholar Michael Dylan Foster called "The Metamorphosis of the Kappa: Transformation of Folklore to Folklorism in Japan." And this has it's just replete with all these great old kappa legends. This is a fun monster, despite the fact that in its original incarnation, it was not. Cute. It it was a nasty, creepy, gross, h- horrific little demon.
2: Yeah. It it it's hard to really come up with a creepier, grosser, just more nefarious monster than this. Like it, in a way, it it rivals what we were talking about with Fred, the original Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Like something that's just like a a weak evil thing that has to, in Freddy's case, prey on children in their dreams. Yeah. Uh, while they're sleeping, and likewise the Kappa. Uh, is is essentially a, a a drowning monster. It's a it's a monster that is that serves as a as a warning and a signifier of the risks of of swimming or swimming alone uh, in a you know a pond or a
0: river or even walking by a river. Yeah, the inherent danger of water or using a toilet. I mean, it'll get yeah. you anywhere that's wet. Oh, it it will get you too. <laughs>
2: so the kappa, also known as uh, Kowako or the Child of the River. Um, yeah, it's essentially a Japanese manifestation of drowning fears, particularly mm-hmm. with young children. And its signature hybridity, because you're going to find this hybrid nature in any monster pretty much, and certainly in the three we're looking at here, is that it's essentially a tortoise with a monkey's head or it's like a monkey that has scales uh, on it as well, maybe webbed fingers. And some accounts also go in an otter direction by making it hairy. Oh, but that will make it cute, right? Well, it depends on the otter. Otters. Are they not as cute as I think? Depends on the otter. Like the giant otter, if you've ever seen like a giant, I think it's an Amazonian river otter. Mm. they they look rather uh, hellish. And if you actually study like the mating behavior of otters, like they're all pretty gross. Yeah, uh, like there's a lot of violence in their mating. Horrible. Face chewing, that sort of thing. Whoa, yeah. But uh, in the case of the of of the kappa here, Its other most notable feature is a small depression in the top of its skull called a sara, which contains a fluid that serves as its life force and we'll get we'll get back to the uh, implications of that in a second.
0: So if this were like a low budget horror movie it would be Cuphead.
2: <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> so the kappa draws people and animals into water where they devour their prey and or drink their blood or their life essence. They're also big sumo fans, so they might like The try sport to, of sumo. Yes, they love sumo wrestling and they might try and wrestle you. And there are, there are at least eight regional variations on the kappa and most of what we know of them comes from early 20th century folklorists and or amateur collectors. But if you want to avoid the kappa, there are three ways. One, don't go where there are kappas. That's a a big one. Okay. You know, don't go near the water at all. Or you can befriend them by bringing a cucumber and stories vary because they like cucumbers, uh, but stories vary on whether eating a cucumber prior to swimming will attract or repel the monster.
0: Now they like cucumbers, but they don't like gourds. That's right, gourds
2: will repel them. And there's there's some interesting uh, material uh, in the in the paper uh, here that gets into exactly like what that means—the symbolic meaning of like the phallic cucumber and an arguably yonic gourd. Hmm. So it's it, it gets heavy. It's a great paper, uh, and then finally. You can make a low bow to the kappa, especially if it's challenging you to a sumo wrestling match, uh, and this will force it to respond in kind, so it'll dump its own life force out onto the ground. Ah, oh, Cuphead is tricked. Yeah. I think this is fascinating because it, this may be the only monster that can be slain through etiquette alone. Just hmm. proper Japanese etiquette and you will defeat it.
0: Yeah, and this does seem to make it not quite as, you know, absolutely horrific as some other monsters. Now, there are horrific qualities to it, but the fact that you can so easily trick it mm-hmm. and uh and the the fact that it seems bound by some standards of politeness does sort of undercut its original horror, maybe? Yeah, yeah, a, a little bit. But then again, you, you also have to look at,
2: at this and any monster and realize that it's – it's a it's not occurring in one place at one time. Right. It's it, there are various traditions, various versions of it. So you can easily see some somebody comes along and like this monster sounds horrible. This monster needs rules to keep it in place. Yeah. And these are the cultural rules that will keep the monster at bay. Um. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, the cop, that cop doesn't sound that monstrous. So it. You know, so it drowns or drains a few children. Well, (laughs) wait for this, because uh, Foster in his paper points out, quote, not only does the kappa have a penchant for pulling both children and adults into the water, but it often does this in order to steal the liver, a feat it achieves by reaching its arm up through the victim's anus to snatch the desired organ.
0: Yes, you heard that right, folks. It will steal your liver through your
2: anus. And to do that, it gets worse. Uh, in order to steal the liver, it has to essentially uncork the human anus by removing the non-existent organ known as a shirikodama. <laughs> Quote, a
0: ball once thought to be the mouth of the anus. This is maybe something we should do an entire episode on someday, is all of the non-existent human yeah. organs people used to believe existed. That would be, that would be good. Let's, yeah. let's, uh, let's remember that one for later.
2: Uh now you're probably wondering well why why would they make this up? Why is there there has to be a reason to make up this organ and like clearly you can you can inspect yourself and realize that there's no cork uh organ in your anus but the grim reality here is that. You have a drowning victim. A drowning victim is found, uh-huh. and they may have a quote open anus due to the unclenched sphincter muscles. Oh, I see. And this this falls in line, of course, with the coppage role as a monster of drownings. You find this uh this body, and here it is. There's something peculiar about it. Its anus does not look like a living person's anus. But wouldn't this be the case with any dead person, not just somebody who drowned? Yeah, and that's something that uh, that Foster brings up. Uh, However, my read on it, though, is that if you're dealing with people who have drowned, I feel like there's a, a higher possibility that that body is found nude or mostly nude hmm. uh, since it was swimming, uh, whereas bodies in other situations may be covered with clothing and then therefore less susceptible to, susceptible to this kind of folkloric uh, exploration of what is happening.
0: Okay, but it's not just going to pull you into the river or the lake or whatever. The kappa also haunts toilets.
2: That's right. Uh, it may wait until you are vulnerable uh, while uh, pooping or peeing, uh, perhaps near the water, and it is uh, it is ready to attack the buttocks and hips, according to Foster. Um, so it's it's not only a murderous creature; it's a creature of profound sexual violence as well. Like yeah. it is. It's it's part of its design, this kappa. That's just how monstrous it is. It's it's very much like the the Freddy Krueger. Like the kappa and Freddy are essentially cut from the same uh, mold. Right. Not just threatening, but really gross. Right. So how do we get from, from this to cute, you're probably wondering? Well, as, uh, as, as Foster explores in his paper, by, by the 1960s, folk belief in the creature had all but vanished. And it had become a, quote, clean, cute creature used as a symbol of tourism, of commerce, of clean water, and even as a symbol of village and national identity. Huh. And he says that this falls in line with Hans Moser's 1962 notion of folklorism in which an existing folklore is taken out of context and altered or invented for a specific purpose. And, of course, media and commerce play a heavy role in this.
0: Now, I thought this was interesting because I wondered about this concept of folklorism and the idea is that someone would take existing folklore and change it or invent new folklore or uh or manipulate it take it out of context mm-hmm. for some kind of intentional conscious purpose right but it makes me wonder um how is that different from the way in which bits of folklore are are originally created like why it's almost as if assuming that folklore um is arises unconsciously out of the spirit of uh, the people, and that when people consciously manipulate folklore, that's a different kind of thing. I, I mean, I I sort of wonder to what extent the things we think of as folklore, the original stories, are consciously created, are they not? Well, I mean, it comes
2: back to the whole rules thing I said earlier, like imagining someone or multiple people coming along and tweaking an existing. A legend or folklore in order to convey a point or to convey a slightly different point. Yeah, um, and then and then likewise, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's one example that Foster points out, and this is from uh, the Edo period. So this was 1603 to 1868 uh-huh. in Japanese uh, history, and in this case, it, the, apparently you had a doctor who used a story about a kappa as a way to promote his business, the idea being that, as is the case with a lot of these monsters, they have some sort of hidden knowledge Mm -hmm. or hidden powers that uh, a crafty individual can trick them out of. And so this doctor uh, learned some, I think, a bone-setting technique from the kappa, and he basically put that on his calling card. If you're going to go to the doctor, then go to the go to, you know, go to Dr. Kappa touched and he will (laughs) he will use his mystical abilities to heal you, Uh which is essentially a marketing ploy. Yeah. So keep all that in mind. But basically what happens is, yeah, after a while, people have forgotten about the Kappa. Like there's there's not a lot of there's no longer any belief in it. People are not. Reporting sightings of the kappa, and uh, and then you end up going with through several waves of sort of you know the kappa renaissance where people rediscover it and they start uh, using it in new ways, um, and, uh, and 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 this is inevitably going to involve outsiders crafting it. Uh, that's the the argument here is that the kappa is is a creature of rural areas. It is a creature of the people, of the rural people. It's a, essentially kind of a peasant monster. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to have people that are cut off from all of that. Essentially, you're going to have city folk come along, take the Kappa myth, reinvent it, reutilize it. And then after a while, like no one's connected to it back in the rural areas anymore. So they take it back. They take this, this reformed version
0: of the Kappa. And then what do they do with it? Well, they sort of turn it into a cultural mascot. Right? Yeah. It makes me think of it. Have you ever seen the tourism materials that are sent out by the Iceland tourism board or whatever it is no. that, that promote the fact that people in Iceland believe in the fairies, the hidden folk, you know, oh, okay. the, the, the secret other world, the hidden folk that live or believe in elves and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I don't know to what extent it's true that, that many people in Iceland literally believe the fairies are there. I know some people probably do, but I doubt it is is true in a literal sense to the extent to which it's promoted. But it does seem to be a thing that is uh, – it's a rumor that spread to bring people to Iceland for tourism because isn't that cute? People there believe in elves or believe in hidden folk.
2: Yeah, forgetting, of course, the fact that belief in hidden forces often – uh, in many cases can have pretty horrifying real world results but it is it is a sanitized version of it yeah. and uh and foster points out that what what you have here is that you have a sanitized monster that was you ends up being used to promote a sanitized notion of rural life in japan and he says that the craziest thing is that uh quote had the kappa not been snatched up by the mechanism of folklorism it most likely would have died or survived only as a museum relic in collections of folklore Folklorism change, in other words, kept the
0: monster alive. Wow. So this conscious manipulation of the folklore is the only reason the folklore really stays prominent.
2: Yeah. Well, like with Freddy, we can go back to Freddy and say, yeah, you can bemoan the fact that this 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 horrifying thing from the first film was kind of killed by this subsequent incarnation. But if Freddy – I don't had... know how many
0: people really bemoan that <laughs> fact, but I see what you're saying. Yeah,
2: but – but certainly, like that's how it survived. It, uh-huh. it grew into the shape and the size that was sustained by the culture. Freddie became the Freddie that uh, that 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 we needed. That that, that was essential, apparently, to um, modern Western living.
0: Right, <laughs> or maybe not the Freddie we need, but the Freddie we deserve. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so how about another monster from Japanese folklore, the Oni? Oh, yeah. So we read another paper about this uh, called "The Transformation of the Oni from the Frightening and Diabolical to the Cute and Sexy," and this is by a Japanese scholar named uh, Noriko T. Ryder, also in the journal Asian Folklore Studies, and this is from 2003. So Writer's Paper is really interesting. It charts a very, very similar arc to what we talked about with the Kappa, this folklore monster transforming into something that's different in modern 20th century pop culture. The Oni... Appear in Japanese literature and folklore going back to ancient times and the oni are generally these large, disgusting, shape-shifting monsters with one or more horns on the head. They wear tiger skin garments and they like to eat human flesh. Other common powers include flight and the ability to shoot lightning and there are sort of different breeds of oni, right?
2: Yeah, they're, they're basically two varieties. There's like the terrestrial Oni and the infernal Oni. And the infernal Oni is there to drag you to hell at the moment of your death, if you are, in fact, deserving of, of one of the hells.
0: Yeah. So first, let's look at the old vision of the Oni before they were before they were tamed or domesticated <laughs> like the let's look at their wolf like Canid ancestor. So the the scholar uh Ishibashi Gaha argues that the Japanese Oni concept evolved from a previous type of spirit or monster, the Yomotsushi Kome, which is literally fearful creatures of the Netherland. Ooh, I like it. And these appear as early as the Japanese creation myth known as the Kojiki. So in the first known Japanese language dictionary compiled sometime around the year 930 CE, oni is defined as, quote, "hiding behind things, not wishing to appear. It is a spirit or soul of the dead." So in this earlier vision, it's more of a spirit. It, I mean, mm-hmm. and there are these different categories of of Japanese uh, folkloric beings. There are, you know, more like the, the, the kami, you know, the deities. Right. And then there are the yokai, which are more like the monsters. Uh, and it was during the medieval period in Japan that the oni became a major part of popular folklore in this classical monster form that we first introduced – Common oni features in the medieval folklore are going to include some of what we've already described, things like one or more horns on the head, skin colors like red or blue or black or yellow, a third eye in the forehead, carrying an iron mace as a weapon, wearing a tiger skin loincloth, and the fact that they're usually male but not always – and Oni were these horrific demon monsters that people believed to exist in the world, kidnapping people, especially young women, drinking their blood, eating their flesh. But they also seemed to be this useful cultural concept. Uh, in the words of a scholar named Komatsu that uh, that Ryder cites in her paper, many Oni were, quote, people who had different customs or lived beyond the reach of the emperor's control. Hmm. And you can see this in the way that Oni were deployed in Japanese imperial propaganda during During World War II, which was depicting enemies of the state such as Winston Churchill or FDR or the Chinese leader Chiang Kai-shek as Oni. And it's common, of course, during war to motivate your populace against the enemy by characterizing them as devils of some sort. Oh,
2: yeah. We see plenty of examples of that in, in Western co- countries as well during the same time period.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but apparently this this cultural inclusion and exclusion tactic follows the Oni monster specifically deep into history. Uh, so a few stories about the Oni. One story appears in the 10th century CE narrative Tales of the Issei, and it goes like this. You got a man. And he falls in love with a woman of high social status, mm-hmm. and he kidnaps her. And they are fleeing in the night, and there's a thunderstorm. So the man decides they should take shelter at a ruined building near the Akuta River. And the woman goes inside the building for shelter, and the man stands guard at the door all night. But when the woman is alone inside, an oni appears, and it eats her in a single bite. Oh, man. That's got to be a big oni, <laughs> right? Yeah. She screams when the oni's there eating her, but the man standing guard doesn't hear her because of the thunder. And this portrays this sort of alliance between the oni and these powerful elemental forces like lightning storms. Oni are sometimes said to be able to shoot lightning. Now, another story is contained in a 9th century collection called the Nihon Ryuiki, And the story translates to On a Woman Devoured by an Oni. So at the time the Emperor Shomu reigned, a rich family in Yamato province had this beautiful daughter, and lots of men wanted to marry her, but she was like, nah, not interested. Until a suitor shows up with unbelievably extravagant gifts to win her over, including three carriages full of silk. So she accepts his marriage proposal, and on the wedding night, the newlyweds stay in the house of the bride's parents. The woman's parents hear her crying out in pain during the night, but they don't do anything about it. And when her mother enters the bride and the groom's bedroom in the morning, all that's left is her daughter's head and a single finger. And the rest has been eaten by a shape-shifting oni, which apparently appeared in the form of a handsome young man. And this is evidence early on that the oni have this power of shape-shifting, one of the most common things. Like very often in other stories, oni would appear as beautiful women in order to seduce men and then they would turn into oni and try to devour them or kill them or something
2: someone should do a version of the werewolf game with oni they're perfect for it you know that would be perfect oni yeah there are oni among us okay
0: so how do the oni become cute yeah
2: because it's like with the kappa this sounds pretty monstrous and horrific this is like a standard like Uh, you know, woman-eating ogre here, how does it become a a cute thing?
0: Well, Ryder cites several examples of how oni have become cute in modern Japan on a very similar time scale to what we talked about with the Kappa, you know, Mm -hmm. the Kappa especially having these cute incarnations in the second half of the 20th century, uh, especially around the 1970s. One example of cute oni that Ryder cites is the Loom Invader, so in 1978, the Japanese manga artist Rumiko Takahashi created this incredibly popular series called Urusei Yatsura, which translates literally into something like Those Obnoxious Aliens. <laughs> and beginning in the 1980s, it was adapted into a TV series, films and a bunch of other spin-off media. And the premise is that there's a group of Oni from outer space that arrive on Earth, sort of blending Oni folklore with these alien invasion stories that started to become popular in the middle of the 20th century. Uh And one of these invaders is an Oni called Loom, who at first is part of this invasion force, but somehow she ends up becoming the the loving and devoted wife of a lecherous teenage boy on Earth. (laughs) Unlike the Oni from medieval folklore, Lum is not overtly monstrous. Instead, she's represented primarily as cute and through overtly eroticized characteristics. In short, she's depicted as as she's supposed to be sexy. And uh, Lum has these subtle signs pointing toward the traditional Oni. For example, Oni usually have horns. Lum has these couple of diminutive horns on top of her head. She sometimes seems to have fangs and other indications of a cannibalistic nature. She seems to have the power to shoot lightning, which is associated with some Oni legend. She can fly like the Oni. And Oni are often depicted, I mentioned earlier, as males wearing a tiger skin loincloth. Loom wears a tiger skin bikini. Huh. I was talking with our coworker Lauren Vogelbaum, one of the hosts of Food Stuff, another podcast in the House Stuff Works Network, you should check out if you enjoy food and all things uh edible and imbibable. But uh I was talking to her about this because I know she is an insightful consumer of manga. And she pointed out that there are actually plenty of other anime and manga characters that display this trend of taking a traditional monster and making it cute or making it sexy or both. And one example she mentioned was a manga series known as Sayuki, in which the main characters are the Monkey King character and his demon companions. But they are rendered as cute boys, these, are, <laughs> these like, attractive young men, sort of like an, uh, you know, manga boy band. Uh-huh. Um, But a demonic one, and they're essentially a male parallel to the cute and sexualized oni we see in Loom.
2: But as with the kappa, all of this with the oni comes down to like the revitalization of uh, of rural
0: areas, right? Oh, well, that's another aspect of it too. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you've got this stuff in mass media, but then you've also got like we saw with the kappa being used as some kind of a rural mascot for a town or a village. You, oh, the town revitalization movement is another thing that Ryder points out as a place that the oni re-enter the modern consciousness and kind of metamorphose into something much sweeter. So uh the, there's this movement, the town revitalization movement uh, in Japanese, I think it's Maki Okashi. And uh so in the same way that the kappa was embraced as a local mascot, it seems the oni have been as well. And Ryder cites these examples, the Oemachi in Kyoto, which is located near Mount Oe. Uh this is the traditional setting of a story called the Shuten Doji, which is about this band of Oni that live in the mountains and they're doing their Oni thing. You know, they're kidnapping and eating locals, especially local maidens, and they'll mm-hmm. eat their flesh and drink their blood until some warriors infiltrate the Oni hideout and kill all the Oni. And Ryder writes that at the time of this paper, uh this town with the original setting near the Shuten Doji the town is facing a depopulation crisis with the population essentially growing old and younger people not replacing them. And one way the residents apparently sought to revitalize the town was to embrace the Oni legend and the imagery in order to attract interest and tourists. So they developed these Oni related legends and sites. They got an Oni museum. So a creature that would have once caused unspeakable terror is now this fun attraction to draw people and money. It's
2: kind of like the small town kid uh, you know, makes good. He, he leaves the small town, makes it big, and then is just invited back in and becomes a hero, even though they kind of treated him like dirt to begin with.
0: Yeah. Well, it also sort of reminds me of what you might see in, say, Salem, Massachusetts, where mm-hmm. originally you had the fear of witchcraft, which yeah. was a genuine panic that terrified people and led to deaths. And now it's more to, it's embraced in this kitschy way, like witches have become a cute part of Salem's identity as a town, so they'll have witch museums and witch souvenirs and stuff like that.
2: Despite the horrifying reality of the essential like, human monstrosity of the whole situation. Exactly. So what can we take away from this example?
0: Well, Ryder's got some ideas. So we've got these two different things I mentioned, the cute, non-threatening, and eroticized oni that appear in Japanese cartoons and the embracing of oni folklore as an economic and tourism draw. And Ryder writes that much of the the art and entertainment in Japan still views the oni as evil and terrifying beings. Like, it's not all cute oni now. She gives the example of the 1990 film Dreams by Kurosawa. I've seen that one, yeah. And one of the stories in this movie apparently... uh, Tells the story of humans who were turned into Oni by a nuclear blast.
2: Oh man. I vaguely remember that. I mainly remember the space section of it. Yeah. Not so much the oni. I'll have to go back and watch it. It's a
0: horrifying idea. Yeah. Uh, but now we also have these oni with inherent aspects of harmlessness, cuteness, the the eroticized aspects. Or the ones that are simply fun and familiar, like the witches now. And she seems to think that this is an outgrowth of Japan's post-war economic transformation. In other words – Horrifying folk beliefs in monsters don't really make you the big bucks, but apparently cute, harmless, fun, and familiar monsters can bring massive economic dividends. Capitalistic folklorism, in the sense that we explored in that previous paper, folklorism, mm-hmm. the manipulation of folklore, seems to be directly at work in writers' point of view. Huh. But it also sort of makes me wonder, why monsters in the first place? Like if it's simply that cute, harmless or sexy characters and imagery command more economic power, why why isn't it just that we're seeing new characters of this type created? Like why are traditionally horrifying and disgusting monsters being transformed into these cute or sexy or otherwise harmless versions? Well, I wonder
2: if part of it is that there is perhaps even subconsciously it's, it's an interaction with a monstrous figure that had power over us, and maybe still has power over us, and by making it cute, you are, you're, you're making it harmless. You're taking the, uh, the punch out of this monstrous creature you're it's it's like laughing in the face of
0: horror well it almost makes me wonder if this transformation is an outgrowth of the uh, of the skepticism and secularization of the 20th century mm-hmm. like as people tend to believe less literally in demons monsters and devils would we tend to take them less seriously as genuine threats i mean obviously we would and if we think that there's no genuine monster danger to warn against what prevents us from stripping the fear-inducing elements out of the monster folklore, Uh, is it a thing we do simply because we can? Does that make sense? Like, if in the past, people didn't make the monsters harmless because they believed that you genuinely had to understand that these monsters were dangerous, as soon as we stopped taking monster legends literally, Mm -hmm. then we had the power to render them, to defang them. Yeah, I think I I, I would buy that. That sounds like a, a good read on it. Yeah, but there's another thing that I wonder about is like, could it represent an actual direct rebuke of the past? Kind of a you know a middle finger to yeah. the superstition that produced belief in monsters throughout you know every culture in the history of humanity.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's because we've touched on this a number of times when we've talked about older ideas, myth- mythologies, um, religion even, where it's it's easy to take a modern approach and say, oh, well, those people were stupid. Look at the things they believed in, monsters in the woods eating you, um, you know, some sort of strange right. turtle creature reaching up your anus after your liver. Um but when you, do di- when you begin to dissect these ideas and you put them in the context of the time, right. uh, it, it's not so simple as to just say, oh, well, these, these
0: people were, were dumb. No, they weren't stupid. They knew less. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same thing.
2: Right. I mean, in a way, they, they perhaps knew more because they knew to take, a, like, say, a dangerous area or a dangerous – uh, you know, cultural area, yeah. and, and assign a monster to it to uh, to ward people away from it to to keep the curious from
0: getting too close. Right, and children we, don't go, don't go near the water's edge because exactly. there's a monster there. Yeah,
2: and even if you you're not up on the reasons to stay away from the water, like the realistic reasons, the monster still resonates. And we've actually touched on this on the podcast uh, in in regard to creating potentially creating new monsters, new mythologies to guard, say, uh, places where radioactive waste are deposited.
0: Right. So you've got high-level waste, you mm-hmm. know, the, the really dangerous stuff stored at a place somewhere on Earth. And that's going to be dangerous for literally thousands of years, much longer than any kind of sign you would probably put up uh, would Laws, be there. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you maybe if you made a really durable sign. But yeah, <laughs> it's going to outlast almost any measures you put in place to keep people away. So it's almost like you wish you could come up with a lasting cultural belief that this place is cursed. And there's a monster that dwells there, and there's nothing of value, and it, you should it, it just uh, a, a sticky image that will drive people away for hundreds of generations. Yeah, and
2: that's yeah, that's exactly what a monster is. The, uh, you know, nations fall, empires fall, laws fade, uh, signs of warning fall into the dust, but the monster perseveres.
0: Yeah, and so coming back to how we make the monsters cute, I, I'm wondering if it's this secular rebuke. Like, does, is turning a monster cute? An attempt to say, even unconsciously, maybe not like people do this on purpose, but are they at some level saying, there are no demons, devils or monsters, and I'll show you. (laughs) And they do it by making the image cute. Uh is it like sort of a, a the the equivalent of blasphemy but instead of against the gods it's against the monster belief.
2: Yeah. And of course it's dangerous to rebuke the monster because no matter how silly you think it is, no matter how, you know, two-dimensional the monster might seem, uh there's probably a lot more going on there than meets the eyes.
0: Totally. You know, I was thinking one other way to clarify what might be happening here. I don't know. Maybe this won't be (laughs) any additional clarity. But are there any monsters we can think of that have not undergone this process, where there are no cute versions of them or almost no cute versions of them? There's not any pervasive attempt in the culture to make a toothless version of the creature?
2: Well, if we're looking at Japanese demons, I would say that the Tingu is probably an interesting uh, case of this. Okay, Now, that's not to say there are no cute Tingu you can certainly find them i found them just doing image searches for the for the english word uh, tingu but you
0: think they're less prevalent
2: i'm getting the uh, you know somebody with more experience with japanese uh culture and pop culture can maybe chime in on this but it seems like there's less of it you do see tingu showing up in video games and and manga and all other uh forms of media but they tend to retain a certain seriousness mm-hmm. that is lacking from you know again the kappa you don't see kappa snatching liver out of anuses as much anymore. But in these cases, the, the, the Tingu still tends to retain a certain regal character and a, and a certain uh, dangerous element as well. Yeah. So I should probably talk about what the Tingu is, though, for, for anyone who... Who's not familiar. Hit me with it. All right. So the Tingu, they are a a warrior class of monsters who reside in the mountain forest of Mount uh, Kurama, north of Kyoto. And their hybridity is that of a bird and a man. Mm. Usually they're described as having a humanoid body but with glowing eyes and a long red beak. And sometimes that beak is more depicted as a long nose. So I imagine if you've ever played a video game and there's a character that seems to have a mask with a long red nose, that's essentially a Tingu. Huh. So they have feathered wings, and uh, they're warlike, they're skilled in martial arts. Humans sometimes seek them out to learn their arts, but frequently go mad upon encountering them. And then, of course, they also have this mischievous side. So if you're if you're in the mountain woods, and you hear something like laughter, well, that might be the laughter of Tingu. If a tree falls, it might have been taken down by a Tingu wind. Mm. And these examples are from uh, the book by Haruko Wakabashi, The Seven Tingu Scrolls. So... The thing about the Tingu is that they were, you know, they varied in form, purpose, and even alignment. Uh, there were, in some cases, good Tingu. But for the most part, they were portrayed as, uh, especially in medieval Japan, as being evil, vengeful, chaotic spirits. They were enemies of Buddhism. Uh, in some cases, they were fallen priests who failed to achieve nirvana. And they were the embodiment of Ma or Mara, or obstacles to Buddhist enlightenment. Now, it's worth noting that they were different from moral evil in this regard. Uh, or or aku. In this the the tingu were they were you can essentially think of them as obstructionists. Uh <laughs> you know, they were they were there to just um to try and prevent you from achieving enlightenment and you had to battle them in your life to get past them. Huh. So they were kind of serious business, you know. Yeah. Uh and very high-minded uh monstrous symbols. And I think that's key too. Whereas these other examples were rural monsters, these were kind of the, the peasants' monsters. The tingu was the the thinking man's monster and I think that plays into its survival
0: yeah so I wonder uh, if something about the level to which a creature is incorporated into formalized religion Mm -hmm. rather than just being a part of informal folk creature or deity belief That's,
2: that's true because there are shrines even uh with Tingu imagery, so yeah. they were more divine in many respects, and again more more regal, more a property of the ruling class and the the priestly class as well. Um, they were also tied up with explanations for a lot of serious stuff that was going on in the medieval period. A lot of the chronic social disorder and instability uh, they were they were symbols of chaos to explain the rise of the warrior class, uh, war, and just the political disunity. Uh, in what some saw as the final age of Buddha's teachings at the time. So, again, you it's not that you won't find cute Tingu out there uh, or just you know very pop-culturally uh, distilled images of the Tingu, but I feel like you see far less of it. The Tingu still retains a lot of its original
0: potency. Hmm. Now, that's got me wondering about other monsters in other traditions around the world and whether... The level to which they're incorporated into the formalized version of the local religion determines how likely they are to be uh, to be euthanized with cuteness.
2: Yeah, because you look at uh, Christianity and you you don't see this. Uh, this is not the case with the devil.
0: You see plenty of cute devils out there. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, you do. I guess that's right. I mean, I was gonna say you don't see as many cute demons as you see like cute vampires and cute ver- werewolves. Yeah, maybe you have a point there. Maybe there are,
2: there are far more cute uh, vampires and werewolves than there are cute demons. Uh, or, or some of the more potentially problematic characters, I guess like the, the angel of God. How many, how many cute, uh, angels wrestling, uh, uh, humans are there? And I guess you also have to ask the question like how, how many trolls are there in the culture? Like how many? Right. How many people were willing to take even, you know, sacred cows right. and make them cute, uh, just for the the sheer, uh, you know, just for the giggles of doing it?
0: Well, then again, I mean, so I think there might be something to that sort of blasphemy equivalent. It's mm-hmm. not blasphemy against the gods, but blasphemy against the monster is a sort of intentional rebuke and and a desire to undercut their perceived power. There might be something to that, but I don't know if I really feel that when I like if I were to draw a cute vampire, I don't know if I'd feel spiteful in doing that. Well, you I might just feel kind of like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> you can't
2: imagine someone going, get away from me, baby
0: Satan. <laughs> <laughs> you have no power over me here. Get thee behind me, baby Satan. So another thing I was talking to Lauren Vogelbaum about uh, was was about this question of what contributes to the transformation of terrifying monsters into these cute versions of themselves. And she made a point that I thought was really interesting. Uh, she said in, in the context of Japanese depictions of, of cute monsters mm-hmm. in manga and anime, um, what if it's the creeping sense of delayed adulthood and the extension of childhood that we see in a lot of cultures in the 20th huh. century and especially the second half of the 20th century and in the 21st century I I mean maybe there are some uh, cultural critics who would come back and say this is not really a thing this is one of those you know uh, BS trend pieces but there are a lot of people who would argue that there is a sort of creeping infantilism among adults in the in the Western world especially mm-hmm. I mean I, I know you've heard that argument right Robert
2: yeah yeah I mean and certainly, you, we it does seem like we remain uh, many of us remain children longer we we don't uh, you know give up all of our childish things as we uh, as we become adults so. right
0: we we tend to stay in school longer we mm-hmm. get married later all of these things that are traditionally in cultures thought of as sort of rites of passage to adulthood get like delayed later and later into life and so it could be possible to think about the idea of of the cuteness of monster imagery uh, well, being related to the fact that children tend to like cute imagery. So could the transformation into cuteness represent an increasingly infantilized adult culture's attempt to make monster folklore more palatable, more cuddly for those of us who don't want to hack scariness?
2: Yeah, I think it could very well be the case. And, of course, it comes back to the idea, too, of cute, cuteness and monstrosity. Being uh, upon the same spectrum, being uh, within the same dimension. And so there's this – they're interconnected already anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's all the more easier to begin tweaking these images and skewing their meaning.
0: Now, I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily endorsing the idea that adults are more infantile than they used to be. I just know that that is a a theory out there. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if I buy it. I remain agnostic. You know, one more thing that this makes me think about is back to our episode on euphemisms. Robert, you remember the concept of the euphemism treadmill and the dysphemism treadmill? I do, yes. So the euphemism treadmill is this concept. I can't remember who came up with it. Was it Steven Pinker? I believe so. That sounds right. I'm gonna say it's Steven Pinker and uh, I can be the one that's wrong. Essentially the idea is that you have a euphemism which is a term you introduce to be a polite sort of elision word to indicate a concept that's somehow problematic or offensive or causes people, you know, like, uh, it's the nice new word that you say. But eventually that word itself tends to become perceived in the culture as not nice. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, uh crippled was supposed to be the nice word for people with disabilities. Right. And then it came to become a word that you, you would never want to call somebody. Um, and so there's this process like that. But then the same thing happens the other way with dysphemisms, with words that we want to use with negative connotations. So, for example, how uh, the word sucks, mm-hmm. you know, to say, like, that movie really sucked. That used to be an incredibly vulgar and offensive, just nasty thing to say. And now little kids say it. I right. mean, it's everywhere. It's lost its power to shock and offend. So you have to keep inventing new words. So you're saying essentially we have to keep inventing new monsters as well. Because the old ones lose their power? I mean, I think that could to some extent be true. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the, we are, we may be seeing some kind of equivalent of the dysphemism treadmill with the monsters of old. Over time, they're just going to lose their power to shock and offend and they become like the little kids saying sucks, the little kids running around with cute vampire dolls. Wow.
2: And it, it and really, it's, it's super hard nowadays with the internet because you, you have like a, probably a lag time of just hours after a film comes out before someone has made a cute button or a cute t-shirt or just a meme uh, based on that monster.
0: Yeah, it happens immediately. When <laughs> when there's a new movie, it happens. Uh, and I think it creates a great challenge for, say, horror movie uh, creators to make a traditional monster scary again. Think about how many recent vampire movies you can think of that have really scary vampires. They've sort of lost their power, haven't they?
2: Yeah, it's you just can't trot out the same vampire over and over again because nobody's buying it anymore.
0: Right, I mean, when Bella Lugosi first showed up on screens, he had people screaming in the aisles of theaters. Mm-hmm. Now you watch it and Bella Lugosi He's great, but he's not scary.
2: Yeah, we often forget just how how terrifying that performance actually was and is really, if you if you look at it with new eyes.
0: Yeah, especially if you knew that he would end up in Ed Wood movies. That's true. That's true.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, there you have it. We have explored the monstrous. We've explored the
0: cute. And we have uh, explored the bridge between. I want to know from you out there, what do you think is going on psychologically, culturally? What is happening when we take these horrifying images and creatures and make them into cute plush dolls to cuddle with? Yeah. Why do we keep doing it? And what effect does it have on the culture?
2: Yeah. What are your favorite examples of this process? And uh, what monsters, if any, have not gone cute? Uh, and for And how long will they remain that way? Uh, as always, you can uh, find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And, hey, on Facebook, we have this wonderful little discussion module you can look up. It's a group. You can join it. And you can chat with uh, other folks who listen to the show as well as the hosts uh, themselves. And, uh, hey, also StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's The Mothership. That's where you'll we'll find all the episodes going back to the beginning
0: of time. And if you want to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, you can always email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.